This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the ink to film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest Taylor Zients, we discuss Steven Spielberg's 1993 film, Jurassic Park. We'd like to welcome Taylor Zients to the show. Taylor is a maritime historian and record-setting deep-sea shipwreck expert. He's also the author of three novels, The Wrecking Crew, Red Sun Rogue, and a recently released thriller called The Maw. Welcome to the show, Taylor. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming. We're so glad to have you. I just picked up The Maw, which I don't know if you can see on our Skype call. Um, I got it at Powell's. Beautiful cover. That's an incredible cover. Yeah, isn't that, that cool? Like the cashier commented on it when I was holding it. So yeah, that's that's the first thing people remark on. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the story about how we got that uh, how we got that cover, and that's uh, uh, I had a bunch of all sorts of ideas that I thought were fantastic about how it should look. They tossed mm-hmm. all of them. They handed it to somebody <laughs> that was really talented who just really got what we were trying to do, and uh, I, I fell in love with it the moment that I saw it. And I thought it was phenomenal. It looks kind of like those. Uh, uh, almost like the uh, the intros to those old Hitchcock movies back in the day, where it's these vivid colors, very blocky, really gives that sense of kind of tension, claustrophobia. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. But yeah, so your novel, um, I, I started it today, actually, because I just picked it up, and it is about a guy who gets summoned to come investigate this mysterious cave uh, that they found in Tanzania, that is like a Cretaceous era super cave. Um, and so when I read that, I was like, ooh, Cretaceous era. I wonder, like, did you have to do research into that time period? And if so, did you learn anything about any dinosaurs? You know, I did research on really just every aspect of this book. Uh, uh-huh. uh, geology in, in that time period was um, uh, was a huge part of that. Uh, paleontology, maybe a little bit less. So that really wasn't in the, <laughs> did not end up being the focus of the. Uh, okay. So there's probably not dinosaurs down at the bottom of that cave then. Yeah, but I, I <laughs> no spoilers, but <laughs> <laughs> no dinosaurs. Uh, like from a research background, so for me, it's it's a it's a huge part of what I do. It's an integral part of what I do, and I I really enjoy that part of a project. Cool. Uh, so speaking of Jurassic Park, um, I'd love to know what your experience is with it. Have you read the novel? And uh, when was the first time you saw the movie? I read the novel many times. I had a little bit of a hard time placing uh, when I actually saw the movie. I, I was doing the math. I was probably about 11 when it came out. Um, you know, uh, maybe was a little bit early for me to see it in the theaters. <laughs> but I do remember the uh, the cultural impact that had. I, I probably saw a lot of the uh, behind the scenes, how it was made documentaries before I actually saw the movie itself. And of course, like any kid that age, just totally blown away. I was already a Michael Crichton fan. I discovered his books in sixth grade. I started reading them <laughs> immediately. Uh, you know, everything I could get my hands on. And that was during the period where he was doing uh, his most well-known work. 
to so to discover that author at that time period and then hey there's these amazing movies coming out at the same time uh, it was it was pretty fantastic yeah your um your book reminded me of Crichton immediately um, especially kind of the adventure aspect of his writing and um, actually a different novel is what came to mind at least for the beginning was uh, uh, sphere have you ever read that one Oh, absolutely! In fact, that was the one I first discovered in, uh, in sixth <laughs> I, grade. Um, yeah, I, I was thought I thought of that because of the expert kind of getting brought out to this mystery thing, and and I don't know, just made me think of Sphere. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's something that's become a, a relatively familiar convention at this point. Right. Um, you know, it's the the expert that's out in the middle of nowhere with no real idea of why they're there. Uh, I, I think my twist on it was that, at least from the from the beginning, my character feels like the odd person out where that he feels like the least qualified person to take on this mission. He has no <laughs> idea what he's doing at first, but that also lets the, uh, lets the reader experience a super cave the way that somebody stepping into one for the first time would experience it, uh, where everything as he goes along is new and, uh, and, and he's learning as he's going along. So, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could, uh, there's definitely been some comparisons made. <laughs> well, I think they're I think they're good ones, and I think people who like Crichton should definitely check out your novel. Um, but I think uh, I think I'm ready to get into the movie. If you are, yeah, let's do it. All right, James, take it away. So, as we well know, Spielberg is the director of Jurassic Park. This film was released in 1993. Um, I don't think we really need to dive super deeply into who Spielberg is as a filmmaker because we actually covered some of that in our Ready Player One coverage. Yep. But I figured today it would be a good day to kind of touch on what was going on with Spielberg in this era of his life, kind of where he was at. I mean, obviously, he's the, the father of the modern blockbuster. And um, creating this film and being so innovative with, with the different techniques that he was implementing because he was you know we'll get deep into it but there is go motion stop motion animatronics um cgi all these different techniques being blended at like such a pivotal time i i just it's it's super worth mentioning that he he was this he was willing to work with all these different departments and try new things at this point in his career something interesting is that he shot jurassic park in post-production, he was actually in Poland shooting Schindler's List. Two greatly different films. Yeah. And I don't, like, I, I mean, in the behind the scenes of the film, they talk a lot about how he had to split his brain in two, basically, and th- be thinking about both of these things at the same time. And it blows me away. Creatively, that would, I feel like that would be so difficult. But um, it's cool that he was able to do it. Yeah. This film being so pivotal at such a time for CG and all of that kickstarted a lot of people into creating their dream projects that they'd been waiting on. Um, people were quoted, this is what brought Lucas in to do his prequels of his Star Wars prequels at around this time he started developing them because they saw the technology was there at this point. So we have Spielberg to blame for the prequels? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> well, I mean, I think we all we, we can all talk a long time about things that were wrong with the prequels, but <laughs> they did do a lot for the technological that's, advancement that's a different of show, filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into it one day, but and I have thoughts. But uh, even, I mean, Lucas did a lot for, for CG filmmaking in the prequels. So it's a big, it's still another stepping stone in, in this journey that I think was that Spielberg started. Right. I, I mean, he didn't fully start it, but like helped to really bring it to what it is today. Um, just to rattle off a couple more, Kubrick started an, an ambitious project in AI, artificial intelligence, um, that ultimately Spielberg would come on to finish. And then Peter Jackson started working on a potential Lord of the Rings film. Because there, you know, the influence from this film is just that massive. It was such a big moment in in cinema. Yeah, it was uh, the moment that anything became possible. 
I mean, there's a before and after Jurassic Park in, in film. Uh, no question. Uh, yeah, so I, I caught some of those behind-the-scenes uh, extras on my on my Blu-ray, and I, one thing that really stood out was when the guys who did the animatronics, uh, or not the animatronics, the um, the stop stop motion like claymation mm-hmm. stuff that all movies used up to this point, basically. And like if you've ever seen the original Terminator, like that's how they did the original Terminator, that kind of stuff. And they said they all had a moment where they, when they got a call that said that they were going to go with CGI instead of what they were doing, where they all of a sudden all felt like dinosaurs who had just got told they were extinct. Um, and that, that, I thought that was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty ironic. <laughs> well, and uh, famously, that made it into the movie, right? There's a the line of somebody says somebody in that moment. I think Phil Tippett says something about um, being extinct, and then Spielberg or someone else says, or I'm sorry, says being out of a job, and then Spielberg or someone else says, "Don't you mean extinct?" And then that line is brought in for Ian Malcolm to give to Grant. Right. <laughs> uh, I watched a documentary recently about Steven Spielberg and learned a lot more about him than I than I had really known. Um, he was raised by his mother. And um, a lot of his films kind of center on that the idea of like a broken home or like or like kids without parents or kids without a parent or parents going through divorce, that kind of thing. And I just thought that it was cool that in because in E.T. you kind of get the absent father. Um, and I thought it was interesting that in this, I feel like he was putting himself in the shoes of Tim and seeing Grant as this like father figure for these two kids who are going through a divorce through their parents going through a divorce. Yeah, something that really struck me as well with uh, Grant, played by Sam Neill, stepping into the archetypal role of a father throughout the course of the movie. I mean, starting out, of course, completely disinterested, but uh, uh, I mean, and there's a lot of great moments of him being being terrible to children, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll talk about. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, not only was it Spielberg's experience, but I thought it made for some really fantastic uh, character development. There was a lot of smart changes to characters um, from what we saw in the novel to the to what we saw in the movie, and that's a that's a prime example. Giving Grant this journey of becoming kind of the surrogate father and coming around on how he feels about children and all that just made made for a really interesting arc for him that was pretty absent in the novel. Yeah, definitely. So I think this is a good point to just kind of jump into some of the story points. We're going to move somewhat chronologically. We're, we will be jumping around, and we're not going to we're not going to touch on every story beat. But uh, yeah. we definitely have to talk about that the opening scene. Yes, uh, because it's incredible. It's it's what a what a way to start a film. Um, instead of giving us the mystery that Crichton's book gave us, he gave us the visual and the terror of the raptor attack. And uh, I mean, it's just it's ter- it's to this day it's terrifying. And when I saw it as a kid, it really stuck with me. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, throughout the whole thing, you can really tell that Spielberg cut his teeth on uh, horror movies. There are so many horror movie conventions and uh, ideas and techniques that he really just uh, put into this movie. And um, I mean, in, in a lot of senses, it felt to me like a like a genre mashup, which is part of, in my opinion, what made it a classic. I had uh, I had one other thought about this opening scene uh, that kind of resonated throughout the whole thing was. This almost seemed to be uh, told from the inside of a uh, like a Bond villain lair. The way that those guys <laughs> are dressed with the jumpsuits and the hard hats, uh, you know, the type yeah. of crazy uh, money making plan that they have with breeding dinosaurs. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of it really is told from the inside of a, of a Bond lair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can I see, that. see that. That's funny. <laughs> 
Uh, and, and, and Muldoon, um, I, I think we open or I think we open with some bushes or tree branches moving. Um, but then we quickly get a close up of Muldoon standing there with his gun. And he's just got this serious, like dead serious look on his face. And from his face alone, you can tell the danger of the moment, right? Like it is telegraphed. Um, so I, I don't know. There's just moments of acting that stood out. I've seen this movie a million times, so I'm finding like little things, you know, that I that maybe I didn't pay attention to other times. Um, and that was one of the things for me. His face in that opener is just it tells you everything you need to know about the scene. Yeah, when the most prepared guy in the entire scene is freaking out, you're, you probably have a problem there. <laughs> The thing is, we also don't really see Muldoon in this state again until the very end of the movie, or well, the end of for him, yeah. uh, where it's like he's like clearly agitated, uncomfortable. You know that there's danger, like you were saying. He's terrified of these things, um, and he was right to be so because somebody's dragged in there. Now, there is a, uh, I don't know if I want to call it a motif or uh, maybe an ongoing symbol um, that I was picking up. Um, throughout the movie that I'll touch on more later, but it, I think it begins here with the gatekeeper slowly raising up this gate and then having the uh, the raptor ram it and then, and then eat him. But um, yeah, I'll return to that later, but I just want to point out that gate moment and how there was a lot of weight given to it and the way it was shot and everything. It was, I think, very interesting in light to uh, some symbols that I was picking up later. Cool. So the next scene is, is Grant in the desert, uh, and we definitely have to talk about this scene because... <laughs> Grant's being a dick to children again, or at least we see him being a dick to children. It's funny, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely a little over the top. <laughs> he, I mean, but it's effective, and I like it. It's it's still like a likable thing, but he's definitely being a dick to that kid. <laughs> well, as the only father here, what was your take on it, Taylor? <laughs> yeah, that was that was a little that was a little over the top. I'd be kind of ticked if somebody uh, showed what showed my kid what it was like to be disemboweled. I was also curious <laughs> who's. Whose kid is that supposed to be in this scene? I think it must be a throwback to the novel, James. If you remember, there was like a group of children who were touring the site, I think from a school or something. Um, and I think that's what's going on here, but it's not really explained, but I'm assuming that's what it is. Right. I remember talking about how we, we would have killed to be those kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also get a little bit of Grant talking about kind of the fo- they're because they're digging up a raptor and they're they're using radar technology to look down. Um, I guess it might not be radar. They're using some sort of technology just to image yeah, was, down was, below the it was surface. Like sonar or some, something like that. Yeah. And in this moment, he starts to talk a lot about the idea of of raptors learning to fly and like there's a lot more. I think it's a lot more heavily implied, even a year on right or a couple years on from from the book being released that like this was like a fairly leading theory because i feel like like didn't didn't Crichton somewhat lean away for like he talked about the, them being early ancestors of birds but like this is like grant saying like this is my stance on it kind of yeah um one of the things i caught in the behind the scenes was that they had a leading dinosaur expert uh along for the production and that was one of his like main theories he was a proponent of so that was they said that that was why they kind of leaned into it one of the things I noticed most about that scene was just the sheer efficiency of which it sets up story. Uh, not only was it the, uh, they mentioned uh, motion-based vision for the T-Rex, which is, of course, an enormous uh, component of the story to come. Yeah. Uh, the danger of the raptors and, and that they were essentially the most to-be-feared animal. Grant's relationship with, uh, with children, which is, let's just call it strained. Uh, the fact that, <laughs> and this was a really big one, 
the fact that these science, that these uh, paleontologists feared being re replaced by technology. I mean, they they feared being replaced by this uh, ground penetrating uh, sonar system, much less having no idea that fully fledged cloned dinosaurs were were also happening at the same time. But it just the economy and the efficiency of which the, really the whole rest of the story was set up within seconds. I thought it was. Uh, Really well done. Definitely. I think right now, or right, right after this scene, right, is when we first meet Hammond. And he's, he's, he's the asshole who's flown in on the helicopter, and he's in their um, portable unit or whatever they're, they're, they've been living out of. I just, I just wanted to point out how great an introduction to a character this is, too. I mean, we get a lot of this in this movie, iconic characters, but everything you need to know about Hammond is on display in this initial meeting, Right he's brash like he's he's come in with a kind of he's kind of reckless he's come in and done something that is a little over the top um he's showy but he's also still likable and he's also still got kind of this grandfatherly vibe that um, makes him way more likable than he was in the in the novel and i love when he says i know my way around the kitchen when ellie tries to help like to handle the champagne and he he takes over pouring it and so even though he's this kind of out of touch billionaire he's also showing that he's grounded in a way right like he's not used to having someone do everything for him so he's just he's nuanced and he's interesting and he's got that kind of wonka vibe a little bit too but yeah. I, I just love this intro to hammond yeah dismissive but charming disruptive but likable uh what what struck me too is right after we set up that grant has this issue with children along comes his benefactor who in and of himself, is very childlike. He, uh, he's yeah. got this childlike sense of wonder, uh, very, very open. Um, so it's, you know, right off the bat, those two characters make natural kind of uh, foils for one another. There's actually a line that was given here that I had never caught before, um, where Hammond says something about children are going to be just amazed at their attractions, that they're one of a kind. And then Grant says, what are those? meaning the attractions, but then Ellie answers, small versions of adults, honey. And she says it real <laughs> fast, and I thought it was, and like, I laughed because of, of the whole children thing, but I never heard that line before. Like, she says it so quickly. And I, I noticed a lot of these little funny lines that adds a really interesting levity to all these scenes that's also kind of absent from the novel, where it was a little bit more serious. Even though this is a serious movie, there are a lot of moments of levity, too. That humor is, I think not only a Spielberg staple, but also something that we can see in a lot of movies today where it's this, even if it's a very serious thriller sci-fi story like this where we have dinosaurs coming back to life and eating people alive, that those moments of levity and those moments, just those moments to chuckle, for whatever reason you connect, to, those are easy ways to connect to a character. In a second, we're going to get basically the trio of scientists, well, mathematician and two scientists, and their their relationship in the movie, to me, is so much stronger than in the book. Because in, in the book, they we'll get to it right now. Uh, I just wanted to comment on on Hammond really quickly. Uh, Richard Attenborough, who, who plays yeah. Hammond, was the absolute right choice to play this man. Like, he was jovial and also like brought a certain amount of gravitas to it. You believe that he's this billionaire as we get along. He, he you're also like sympathetic towards him. Uh, whereas in the book, I was like, fuck this guy. Right. Like <laughs> I was just like, I'm done with him. He's, yeah. he doesn't oh, he know he's terrible. Doing. I don't know why he acts like this. There was a scene right bef between these two, I think where we meet Nedry or am I out of, out of order? I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. I just want to mention yeah. one real quick thing for about that. Because I was on this whole character kick for the intro of this movie and I was noticing how they introduced Nedry is also being really incredible and how 
these 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 character moments are just so brilliant, and it's something that I wanted to note as a creator, um, like try and figure out what they're doing here, right? And it's a lot of strong personalities in this movie. And Nedry is a clear example of that because he immediately is steamrolling Dodson. Dodson is just completely like under his heel in this whole conversation. He literally takes the hat, reaches over and takes his hat off and puts it on the table, showing like complete dominance over him. Um, and then he makes him pay for the meal. And so, so like that character's relationship and also just how he treats people is immediately set up through his interaction with that one character. I love that, like, shorthand for, like, this is who this character is that you can portray with just, like, an, an action that a character does. Like like you said, taking off the hat, something like that. It's just really effective. Yeah, means, motive, and opportunity are set up within seconds. All right, so we're on the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Ian Malcolm is being introduced. Oh, that uh, laugh. <laughs> I can't That's exactly what I was going to ask for. Is, do you guys have a good impression of it? <laughs> well, you just heard my bad one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 pure Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, that laugh is pure Jeff Goldblum. I put it I put it on our Instagram account actually. I think in, in like a story or something. But it's amazing because I've heard it called the helicopter laugh, and it wasn't until I was watching the movie that I realized that it has two meanings. Because I immediately thought of, oh, that's an interesting way to describe it because it kind of goes around and comes around. And I thought that's why they were calling it the helicopter laugh. And I'm like, no, they're just calling it that because it's on a helicopter. <laughs> but I also like thinking of it as a helicopter laugh. <laughs> Speaking of Malcolm, I mm-hmm. think that he's a bit more creepy than I remember. Yeah, he 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 hits on Ellie oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. a lot. He's brash, but like I, I don't know. It's like it's like, yeah, he's kind of slimy. You, you kind of get that feeling, but um he's also just got that Goldblum charisma that you just can't, you know what I mean? Like you can't ignore it either. Right. I mean, it's not that I don't like the character. I just feel like him hitting him hitting on Ellie specifically doesn't hold up very well. <laughs> it creates interesting conflict, which I think is what's most right. important, right? Because Grant also is this, like, he's a really interesting um, kind of non-reaction to it throughout almost the entire movie until a point later on where he finally says, like, that they're, that they're together. But for the most part, he he just it's like water off his back. He doesn't even notice it. It's like a confidence thing, right? Yeah. It's like he's not exactly. worried. And I do agree it's a cool dynamic to give them. But I, I think it's just him being cool and, and knowing and then Malcolm being too oblivious to really even realize. I think he he knew, right, that they were together? Or do you think that he was just like I think he suspected at least. What I thought was interesting about the way that those two interacted with one another was I think for the time period in particular, 1993, they really represented the exact polar opposites of what you could call like a you know a masculine ideal, right? Yeah. Because you've got one guy who's who's a masculine ideal in the sense that he works with his hands, he digs up dinosaurs, he is he's extremely capable, he is uh, generally soft spoken, um, kind of more of like the Cary Grant old school idea of masculinity. We're on the exact opposite of the end of the spectrum. You've got kind of like this, you know, high-tech, fast-talking, uh, you know, really, really charismatic uh, uh, guy. And I, I just think that that's, you know, um, I think that that was done intentionally, right? It's, it's that we have two different masculine ideals, and then we're going to put them through this really stressful adventure scenario. And, and we're going to see what version... Uh, of this idea ends up being successful in this environment. Well, that was that was my idea. Looking at this anyway, I like that. Me too. Yeah, because because both of them were really very much rooted in American culture, right? Th- those are those those two guys are both 
very, very American in, in, in what they are and who they are. So uh, something else to note that that I I think it's very obvious that like this is a thing that's that's being said here, but I didn't notice until you know my millionth time watching, like you're saying, Luke, uh, is just that Grant as they're coming in for the landing when he goes to buckle the buckles, he takes two females and tries to put them together, and that's like a whole comment on the fact that like all of the dinosaurs are female, and then the idea ah. that Grant ties them together, and then life finds a way. He finds a way to tie these two things together. And nice. That's nice. I like that. Isn't that? <laughs> I can't. I mean, I can't say that I took take full credit for it because I've seen it all over online and everything. But oh, okay. it is a it's a big moment where it's like he's t- he's it's clearly like he's like female female. Oh, I'm gonna tie it together, and it's like oh, it's a funny thing. Like he doesn't get technology, but I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Other than not understanding seatbelts, like that's not really that far ahead of its time, is it? No, I, I think you're. I think you're right on with that, and and that makes sense to me. That's a good. That's a good observation. I'd be surprised if that was not very intentional. Although that has happened to me on airplanes about a million times, I'm sure it's happened to everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, like, it's happened to all of us probably, right? Like, yeah, but then you um, get to have your Alan Grant moment and you exactly. tie it, right? <laughs> all right, and now we've come to their landing. They're in the Jeeps. They're on their way, and we get our first shot of this dinosaur. And I, I want you guys to react to it first because I have a lot to say about it. I mean, that's the sense of, of awe is so palatable with that. Uh one of the things I, I asked myself walking into this was, why does Jurassic Park from 1993 hold up so well with its uh, CGI effects when one of the biggest complaints now in 2018 is like, you know what, I just, I just don't buy what I'm seeing on the screen. Uh, right. So I think that he cultivates this sense of awe in, in, in such an intentional way. He's so aware of where the point of view is. Right, he, he allows the mm-hmm. reaction first instead of following the image with the reaction, and uh, you know I, I would say that nine out of ten modern directors are not going to be able to stop themselves from doing the classic sweeping impossible aerial shot. It, it's totally unrooted from the way that any camera in the real world actually works, right? Or, or what you know the average person's experience is going to be, but. On the flip side, what he has is he has this ground-level view of all the Brachiosaurus where we kind of experience this in the way that the characters do. And I think that we also relate to it because, you know, who hasn't stumbled through a forest grove to see the waterfall at the end of their hike and then just stood there in, in awe of it, right? Mm-hmm. We don't, as, as a hiker, we don't get that beautiful, sweeping aerial uh, uh, view or anything like that, we get to stand there and just and soak it in, and, and I think that that's uh, what he did. Yeah, and and um, I guess my observations were that it, it it does feel almost like a religious moment, especially with that score that is almost like uh, something you would hear in a cathedral, and and their reactions are just like stunned amazement at the force of nature that dinosaurs are in this moment. Um, which I think there's not a huge leap to go from there to, you know, you know, uh, some sort of divinity being seen through the natural world. I did think that this, the CGI in this scene, um, while I tend to agree that all of it holds up, um, this I would give, I would knock a few points off. To me, I think it's because it's seen in broad daylight. I think makes just makes it hard, especially for, for from a modern perspective of somebody who's seen, you know what I mean, seen how far CGI has come. 
Um, whereas uh, like the T-Rex scene later that sh- was shown at night in the rain, I think you're able to hide a lot of things. And I think that's one way to make CGI really work for you. It's definitely the one that, that it, you can kind of tell the most, but it's still, I don't think it, for me, it doesn't take away from, from the moment, sure. really. It's a moment with such immense weight. Every time I see it, it feels like the first time again. The idea that I think that you're right, the, since it's not obscured, it's in broad daylight. I also think that that may, may have been one of the first CG shots they worked on. Probably all add up to it, it looking a little different. Were you making a sly joke about the weight of the bronchi- bronchiosaurus there? I right? wasn't. I wasn't, but <laughs> I wasn't smart enough to do that. Sorry. I like it. <laughs> so for me, this this it comes twofold for me. This it's a it's a very powerful moment for these for these characters, and like you said, it's almost religious in the way that the score rises and and the way we see it is is just this come to Jesus moment or whatever you want to call it. And it's yeah. interesting because the characters are playing God, and like, what are they saying with that? Right. Um, but for uh, the other thing that really strikes me is that the audience at the time in 93 is having the same same exact experience that they're having on screen because up to that point, the kind of CG that they had seen was rudimentary. They'd seen, you know, a lot of practical effects in that. But just seeing this moment and being like, oh, this is the kind of movie like we're pushing the boundaries. Yeah. And like just it, it's amazing. It's a huge moment in cinema. That's a, that's a great point. In, in past movies, it would have been a model that would have been stop motion moving. And that's not mm-hmm. what the, this movie pioneered something different. You're right. And it's that first moment. Everyone saw it. It's yeah. the, the everyone's like, what are we about to see? And then when they <laughs> see it, it's not a letdown. And then, of course, we get welcome to Jurassic Park. <laughs> and then the score rises and we see all of them off in the distance. And uh, I mean, what an amazing introduction to Jurassic Park. So uh, they sit down in this ride and the DNA thing is, it's very efficient. It explains everything that you need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, what stood out on this viewing of all this stuff was was the way that, that I was talking about before, Grant, Ellie, and Malcolm. They become a unit in this moment, I think, because they're talking about how did you do this? How did you do that? How could they have possibly done this? And then as the tour is going, they want to stop on the scientists, but it keeps going. And there's the moment where they're like, you know what? Screw it. And they all push, one, two, three, push and lift up the lap bar. And they all together decide they're going to get off the ride. I Just incredible character moments. And, yeah. and like it, it really builds them up. And you can see their relationship. And I think it just makes for for better relationship for the trio than, than was there in the book. Because I feel like there was a strong connection between Ellie and Grant in the book. But maybe Malcolm was like an outlier and he was his own kind of thing going on. This is another really good example of just the, just the efficiency of this movie, right? They could have just had them sit back and go through the entire presentation. Uh, and we learn everything that we're supposed to learn. But it's a character moment. Uh, where they where they come together, it's also a, a, a story moment, right? Where they they show that they're essentially breaking the park experience, the way that it is supposed to be experienced versus what is actually happening are very different situations from one another. So yeah, I mean, it just it serves a lot of purposes all at the same time, and that was something that I I really admire. I was I, I thought about the power dynamic between these characters kind of being tested here too, right? Because we've seen Hammond is very clearly a man who is used to being in control and not having people tell him no. And every time they're breaking free of the system and doing something they're not supposed to do, they're 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 having this power struggle with Hammond, right? Where he's trying to tell them, you're not allowed to do this, and they just don't listen to him. Um, and that sets up them, you know, not agreeing with him and, and, and telling him that his park is dangerous later on. And it, it really the struggle between Hammond and these experts, I think, is uh, integral to this movie. And it's already on display there. 
I also wanted to point out a funny line that once again, I don't think I heard or at least didn't understand until recently. But when they're when they're watching it go by, the uh, Gennaro leans over to Hammond and says, now, are these characters auto erotica? <laughs> yes. See, I, I don't think that I realized that that was a line either. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like, anim- animatronic, I think is what he's going for. But he says auto erotica. <laughs> And I just totally missed that. Every other time I think I've seen it, like I, I, I'm pretty sure that was my first time catching it. Yeah, I don't. That was weird. I, I didn't think that I'd ever heard it before either. I was like, that was that's a new one for me. I'd it's never fine. heard that. Yeah, I think that this this is one of the first points where we see that uh, that, that the way that Hammond thinks each character is going to react basically is flipped on its head. The lawyer who comes in as the adversary is immediately on board because he sees the financial potential. The three yeah. experts that he expected to win over right off the bat just get increasingly skeptical even before anything actually goes wrong. I, I think this is the moment where that starts happening, too. I agree. That's a really good point. So they go into the hatchery here next, or the the nursery, or whatever you want to call it, and I, I immediately thought of Alien and Aliens um, from the 80s, and I thought it was an interesting least visual similarities, except for it being a very bright scene versus a very dark scene in Alien. Um, but just when that raptor's breaking free, I don't know. I wonder how many audiences uh, were, were thinking like a face hugger jumping out of the egg, right? Like, is this raptor going to jump out and attack one of them? So I think it creates like an interesting tension there, too. You know, I, I came away with it with almost like the inverse of, of that. Uh, a lot of the way that they focused on it seemed to really be to emphasize how delicate it was, right? How delicate it was handled, how, how fragile everything was. But then when they realize what species it is, that's when it's like, oh, what have you done here? This thing is gonna, this thing is gonna grow up to be uh, something that could kill you, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think it could be both. Like because to make something kind of the opposite is still in, is still in reference to something, right? Like I, I feel like it is still in reference to the alien eggs. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is very different still too. I don't know. I wonder if that if, if we asked if someone could ask Spielberg if he was thinking about the the scene from Aliens at all, or if that's just completely a pop culture thing that I've <laughs> come to. <laughs> I mean, it's could you have uh, giant eggs in 1993 without thinking of Alien or Aliens? Probably not. <laughs> the scene that it kind of reminds me of, just lighting wise and the way that they're sitting, is the is the actual chest bursting scene. Is like where he's laid out and the way that the, it's lit from the top down. Hmm. Um, and they're like looking down at it. That's kind of when you said when you said alien. That's immediately what I would jump to is like the chest bursting scene where it's like something's coming out of something else. So it's like, did they think it was going to burst out? Like kind of, I could see where you were going with that. Well, if, and it is um, what you meant. It's kind of like red and and gooey coming out of something white and pristine. Yeah. So uh, something else, little internet thing that I've seen multiple times. The first time you see Wu, uh, as they're coming into the hatchery area, he's erasing. He's erasing on the clipboard. So the first thing that you see Wu do is make a mistake. So they're saying like, Wu makes mistakes. They, they're acting like they're not going to make any mistakes here. And literally the first, the, our introduction to him is making a mistake. Right. Just foreshadowing like kind of what's going to go on with the park. It's just like little stuff like that, that I think w- whether intentional or not yeah. lead to interesting discussion. I'd love to know where that, if, if that was something that was directed to him or, or what, how that came to be. So I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention the actual Raptor, uh, puppetry and animatronics are just absolutely incredible and yeah. hold up for me 100%. The cracking of the egg, the way that he, the, the, she actually, the way that she is, is breaking from the egg, um, 
and Hammond pulling pulling that little piece of egg off the top, and then it has a little reaction away from him as he does that, and it just uh, I don't for a second think that it's that it's false. You know what I mean? I I think yeah. that it's a real thing that's happening. And Stan Winston, I feel like we should definitely say his name many times throughout this because he was the practical effect guy. He was the person who was facilitating with, they were working together with the CG in order to create the product that we got on screen. And I mean, they created basically every dinosaur you see and blended it with some sort of CG at some point and uh, props to them and everything they did on this movie. And the fact that they were able to find a way to survive, you know, they're not quite extinct yet in this movie. You know, there's still <laughs> the, the practical effects that are going on and it can be blended with CG. And I think to great effect, I think even today, that's where you're going to get your best looking special effects is the blend of the two. Yeah, for nothing else, it's it's a great starting reference point for the artists to see uh, see a physical, a physical object in the, uh, in the space that they're going to start working on. I think throughout the movie... Uh, whenever there's that that uh, animatronics, um, I, I agree. Like it's it's utterly convincing. Spielberg has tons of little tricks he he employs to make us believe that it's a real creature. It's funny because this movie's um, legendary for in, kind of inventing the modern CGI blockbuster, right? But it's got some of the most iconic practical effects I think of all time. Um, and you know, famously the, the Rex later, the, the, the machine they made, um, was incredible. Absolutely. They were pushing the boundaries in every department. It wasn't like they were leaning on CG. These people who were doing these practical animatronics were, that was the cutting edge, but it's, it's crazy stuff. So we, we cut to the Raptor enclosure and still to this day is it's horrifying. It's unbelievably scary where they, they're dropping in the cow and we don't see the Raptors. We just see them, them attacking in the bushes Muldoon's like we got to kill them all just like he does in the book and it's like they're setting up how dangerous these creatures are and the fact that they're so smart it's just it it's such a great villain for this movie yeah I really always like what Muldoon has to say about him because he's uh, you know he praises them right there, there's an aspect of the animal that he uh, he fears and respects so anytime he uh, says something about him he's, he's the one person that's, that's uh you know, on the on the Jurassic Park side of it, not the experts that were brought in, that seems to have a really healthy respect for what they're dealing with. There's a really interesting filmmaking technique. I don't know what it is. Maybe you can shed some light on it, James. Um, but something that Spielberg does here that I I feel like I don't know how often I've seen this done. There, um, he's when he's first talking when Grant is first talking to Muldoon. He's talking kind of as a group with everybody else. And then halfway through, um, the rest of the group turns away and starts having their own conversation. And the camera stays with that other group that kind of breaks away. But we hear Grant and Muldoon talking still because that's the interesting bit of dialogue. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I don't know that I could put a specific name to it, but it's yeah. definitely a technique where you're shifting, you're shifting a gaze, you're shifting the focus. If you're if you're creating a, a scene, if you're if you're blocking a scene, you're gonna have you're gonna have certain things move in the scene to draw the eye, right? And yeah. so as he's pulling out and showing that whole group, your eye is drawn to the other group. So you're looking at them because they're in the foreground, they're more on the foreground. Right. But as as you're listening to their conversation and it's fading out, you're realizing it's not it's not relevant. And as you're realizing their conversation isn't relevant, they actually turn. They finish their conversation, turn, and then it shifts back over. It's really smart filmmaking, and it's and it's engaging because it's not just set the camera down and this is what you get. There's yeah. there's motion to it. He's playing with the the viewers. You know, he's playing with the audience. He's making you. He's keeping you on your toes. I think. 
Uh, very quickly, I wanted to hit on the fact that Jeff, go- they they come into like this conference room and they kind of start talking about the park so far and this, after they see the Raptors. And uh, just Jeff Goldblum's mannerisms are, I think, what make Ian Malcolm so incredibly iconic because just the way that he delivers the the, the almost verbatim life finds a way speech and then the way just the, his delivery <laughs> yeah. and his like his mannerisms i mean i don't know i think it's mostly just jeff goldblum yeah. but if he d- intended a lot of that stuff I, it's genius he, he's just like such an interesting guy like it's he's so eccentric it seems like he really brought a lot to this character um that wasn't in the script for, especially in, and that was that was hinted at in the in the behind the scenes footage i watched too there's the introduction of the children next and um they run up and, and hug Hammond and they're kind of setting out onto this tour. And as they as they're being introduced, Tim is he's in love with Grant right away. So he wants to ride with him. And there's this great shot, this like following tracking shot where they're in one car, they go to the other car. There's no cuts in this whole thing. They, they're in one car. They Grant leaves that car. He follows behind. He's and then he asks him, are you going to which car are you going to be in? And he's like, whichever one you are. And then he shuts him in the other one. Shuts him Slams the, the door in his face when he's talking. <laughs> as he's brutal. saying things, as as he's saying things that that you know Grant should be engaged by because he's like <laughs> this kid trying to talk about dinosaurs and books that have been written about it. But uh, and then he turns and just this whole this whole camera move. The reason I'm mentioning it is because it's all to set up the joke, right? It's like it's it's the joke. You think the joke is slamming the door in the face. As it shifts over, we see Lex. Ellie is set up Grant by saying that Lex should go with Grant in whichever car because it'll be good for him. Right. So I think that's the ultimate punchline. And just like the way that the camera tells that joke is is fantastic. Yeah, that, that show was a lot of fun, um, especially it, it's such a perfect way to set up the relationship that developed over time. Grant doesn't come across as being a complete jerk either. I mean, the kid was kind of throwing shade at his book at one that's point. True. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. I could see why he maybe wouldn't want to be locked in a car with somebody that's going to pick apart his work, but uh, <laughs> even if that person's what, like ten years old or something like that, it was it was a lot of fun. Especially the camera movement really makes the whole thing, like you said. I, I I know on this on this tour, and this is something that I'm just kind of spitballing here after what you said, James, about the uh, buckles, um, the line about uh, uh, you know I forget, I can't I can't remember the exact way it goes, but it's like God creates dinosaurs. And then you know that line that that series all the way down to women women uh, women inherit the earth. I just thought about how all of these dinosaurs are female, and um, you know you can look at the macro story of Jurassic Park throughout all the movies and the books is more about them getting off the island and 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 starting to potentially create an apocalypse type scenario where they're maybe going to reinherit the earth. Um, and I just like the idea that it's a, a, an island of all females. Who are kind of these the you know the starting point for that? I don't know. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but <laughs> if we're making connections, I can I can make that one. I thought it was just maybe a fun character moment where uh, she was able to undercut some of the gravitas that uh, that uh, Jeff Goldblum is putting out there through his character. Sure, and the the sausage fest that is uh, these <laughs> all or, going on all around her basically. <laughs> these two these two men, like you said, almost kind of um, sparring with each other, right, through a lot of these scenes in their own ways. Oh yeah, I mean you get you get that many really bright people in one small space like that. It's it's uh, it's bound to happen in a story like this. So during the tour, they go along. There's not many dinos to speak of until we run into the Triceratops. 
which is basically the same thing as the book. Uh, they go down and find that the tr- Triceratops is sick from eating a certain type of plant. And great character moment for Ellie. And I, I will say that she has a lot more to do in the film than she, she had in the book. And just the Triceratops animatronics, again, I have to comment on them. It, it's unreal. And by unreal, I mean it's completely real. It looks completely, <laughs> completely real. It's, it's When you look at it and, and they're leaning on it, it's breathing, and the, the blinking of the eye as they, they shine the light, it's, it's so real. We kind of sw- switch over to Nedry shenanigans. He's getting up to his scheme. He's finally implementing his scheme. And uh, their relationship in, in the control room is pretty solid. Uh, it's funny stuff. Samuel Jackson's in there as Arnold. And uh, Nedry puts his plans into effect and the tour stops effectively. The other things are going on. He's, you know, he's grabbing his vials and heading off just like the book. But uh, the tour stops and we get this incredible scene that, that I'm sure that we all de- are desperately wanting to talk about. So I'll <laughs> let you guys lead off with this as well. Yeah. Um, right from the beginning, I said this was a, to an extent, a, a genre mashup. And that genre would be horror. Um, <laughs> we... <laughs> We set up the rustling. We set up the, the, you know, the isolation, footsteps in the water. Just, I mean, iconic. I mean, there, people still joke about that. Uh, you know, anytime I see, like, uh, I've got a cup of water and the water starts shaking like that, I immediately think of the movie 25 years later. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, the, um, the goat just not getting eaten, which, but disappearing, which is much more frightening than even seeing something get eaten in front of you. Seeing it just vanish. Yeah. And then, you know, it just keeps on getting ratcheted up and up and up and up until the point where we just have that iconic moment of it coming out of the uh, coming out of the uh, electrical lines, which are, of course, off at this point. And just to go back to, like, the why does this hold up uh, from, uh, from a visual standpoint, Point of view is so clear uh, where these characters are, what they're seeing, why they're seeing it. And then the way that the CG interacts with the, with the, the physical world, right? Uh, every time that footstep comes down, the camera has a very subtle but distinct shake to it. And when the actual attack happens, uh, that CG animal is moving stuff around in the real world in a big way to the point where you can't tell. I mean, you almost have to buy it because you're seeing what it's what it's doing. Yeah, and we talked about the blend of the practical and the, and the CG here too because they had this giant robotic Rex, but then they would, whenever you see a scene where you can see it clearly walking, that would be CGI. And it's amazing because even now I would, I struggle sometimes to tell when it's CG and when it's the, the big prop, right? And it's because it's so convincing. And, and uh, the behind the scenes uh, had Spielberg saying that that he had had a moment when they were getting ready to shoot or supposed to just be a night shoot where he decided he wanted it to rain. And all of the guys who made the, the, the robotic Rex were like, we don't know if it's going to work in the rain. And he's like, well, I want it to be in the rain because I think it's going to look better. And I think it's going to make more convincing special effects. And I think he's right. Um, but it's funny because it did create a lot of problems in, in the shooting. Yeah, just to speak to that, the uh, the massive animatronic Rex that they had, uh, like you said, it would get as the water soaked into the rubber that they had, it would it would start to shudder 
as they tried to manipulate it because it was built for the certain weight that it basically was set at and any more weight that was given to it, it would shudder and move around. And sometimes uh, during lunch, there's like a, there's a specific story that I read about where they were like eating lunch and then the T-Rex began to move on its own because of the, the weight <laughs> pulled it down and they all fle- like freaked out because they thought, you know, it's coming to life. Uh, <laughs> this is also a great moment to mention to you guys. I'm not sure if you'd heard this before, but uh, the film is 127 minutes long. And six minutes of it have CG shots. So that's the, just telling of what you can do with, with any sort of CG. Like yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the way that you implement it that's important. Yeah, yeah. build up the anticipation we hear before we see. Um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, they, they really squeeze so much of that, out of that. But it was really wise too, just on the same, uh, uh, same frame as, as you're talking about the where they'd shift from animatronics to CG and try to make that as seamless as possible. Even the, the paddock itself, uh, they filmed the original daytime parts of the Nepali coast with all those sweeping cliffs and things like that. Night falls, they basically recreate the whole set inside of a sound, uh, soundstage. So because you've seen it uh, filmed outside, you buy it inside. You know, it doesn't feel like a soundstage, even though it is, because you've already seen what it looks like when it's uh, when it's all lit up in, in the middle of the day. That, I mean, absolutely. That was something that I, yeah, this behind the, when I watched the behind the scenes this time, I, I was stunned to learn that. I assumed it was on site, you know, um, but it wasn't. You're right. I have to tell a quick story. Um, I mentioned that when I was a kid, I saw this movie in the theater, um, and I would have been eight so <laughs> probably even more inappropriate for me to see. And, but I, I was obsessed with dinosaurs at that age. And this movie marked the turning point for me where I stopped being obsessed with dinosaurs. So I think I had an opposite reaction to a lot of people because they frightened me so badly. Um, and I can clearly remember this scene telling my mother that I had to pee. And her going like, what? Not right. Like, not now. Like, we're watching this crazy scene. And I'm like, no, I have to go right now. And I made her take me to the bathroom and leave the theater um, on the pretense of having to pee. But I really was just so terrified that I couldn't stay in the theater. I had to leave. And um, she, I, she found that out later when we were in the bathroom because she talked to me and found out what was going on. And she had to, like, convince me to go back in and finish the movie because um, I was so scared. Yeah, I'm sure you. I'm sure you were not the only eight-year-old that had to go to the bathroom <laughs> at that exact time. Seriously, that, that it was a scary scene. Yeah, yeah. And Tim, be, I mean, like I obviously, you know, Tim was me in that movie, and the fact that he was under direct threat was so terrifying. And it's funny because it, it left a lasting mark on me. Whereas from th- from there on, I found dinosaurs frightening in like a weird way because of that scene and because of um, Jurassic Park. And and I stopped, like I stopped being interested in them. Um, I ended up become like being interested in writing, so that's good, I guess. But uh, yeah, I wanted to be a paleontologist up until around the time I saw this movie. <laughs> so in the future, what I want to happen is when somebody's like, "Why did you want to be a writer?" I just want you to answer dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, because T Rex scared me out of it. Yeah, scared me out of anything else that I was interested in. <laughs> so a couple of things that I uh, that I wanted to hit on, uh, in addition to this, the six minutes of CG, I think this is all together. Um, 127 minute film, 14 minutes of it have dinosaur effect shots. So I think the six is the six minutes is also inside that 14. So mm-hmm. it would be an additional eight minutes of just practical effects. So just so more, to give you an idea more, of how more often practical than CG when you see them. 
Right, and just the, the idea of the characters are what's important in this film, and that should be the driving. Everybody walks walks in for the dinosaurs. They leave. They remember the dinosaurs. But the reason this movie stands the test of time is because of the characters and the adventure and just the the way that you can connect to some of these characters' journeys. I don't know if you guys have heard this also. The water vibrating was a guitar string underneath yeah. the dash. Incredible. Uh the use of of an actual practical effect to to get that you know vibrating water uh you asked me in a, in a past episode luke why i think that this scene uh holds up the way that it does and why it's so yeah. iconic and what it is that i think makes this scene so special and i just wanted to talk about that really quickly yeah this is a very long scene with cg a blend of cg and practical unlike anything that we'd seen up to that point and the entire scene there, there is no like, there's no score that comes in, right? It's just the, it's just the sound design. There's no score to tell you how to feel. It's just kind of what they introduced before they show you the creature. So the vibrating water, the night vision that we're seeing, looking around, um, and then the idea that the goat is there and then it's gone, and then we look up to see the T Rex swallowing it. The moments of heroism too, because we get we get Grant coming out and lighting up the flare in the iconic shot where he's, you know, getting the, the attention of the Rex. That shot gives me chills just thinking about it right now. And right. I've seen it a <laughs> hundred times or more, right? Because the um, idea of facing down a Rex and it's the size of these creatures yeah. and, and the eye, like, it's just, well, it's so and the real. Way it, the way it's shot, literally, it's, it's from behind him, right? And he's in the frame with this giant creature and it looks up at him and roars when he lights the flare and it just is so terrifying. And the fact that he's in frame with it, I think, really sells the fact that, like, this danger is in his face right now. Yep. And that's the last thing that I wanted to hit on. He lights the flare. He gets the attention of the Rex. And then the thing that I think cements this, and it's part of sound design, but it's the roar, man. It's yes. the T-Rex roar. It's the, it's, and in the document, I don't know how much of this behind the scenes you ended up seeing, but it's a baby elephant, a lion, and like a walrus, some other creatures all blended together to give this terrifying roar. And it's, it's the roar, man. It's the roar, the sound design, and just the spectacle and the danger, I think. So another little knowledge bomb, Ian Malcolm's character was supposed to, in the scene, run away, just like Gennaro did, and right. kind of just run away and be scared. And <laughs> apparently Jeff Goldblum wasn't having that, and he, on the day, approached Spielberg and was like, listen, what if I also light a flare and also distract, and that's how I end up getting thrown and hurt? And just the idea of Jeff Goldblum saying, like, this, my character needs to be a little more important, and then, like, he, he lights the flare, and also, in that moment, you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> And he lights it, he runs off, and he throws it and keeps running, thinking that it's going to chase the flare. Yeah, that was so well set up. I mean, it would have been just repetitious if he was running and the lawyer was running. I mean, because those, as characters, they have such different motivations and approaches to everything. The the fact that, you know, he, he thought that he understood what they're supposed to do and totally misjudged it, even though he was trying to do the right thing, uh, it really says a lot about the type of assumptions that he makes about the world and the type of character he is uh, that really carry through. I mean, not only are they, are they completely consistent with the character up until that point, but they really just carry through the entire rest of the movie. What do you think that meant for Malcolm's character in that moment? Like, was he was this his moment of heroism? Was he trying to be like Grant? Was it... What, what do you think that was for his character, ultimately? Like, why did he... Because he doesn't seem like the type to do this, normally. 
I think it was just a giant miscalculation born out of uh, out of arrogance, which is the exact thing that he decried in every other character, right? Um, he he looked at something, he thought that he understood it, and that was all that he needed to feel like he could charge in there and, and do the same thing. Because I mean, he's he has a healthy sense of preservation throughout the entire movie, right? He, he's not going to be somebody that unduly puts his his life on the line for really anybody. Uh, but he's also very arrogant, and, and that was that was the moment where it really cost him. It's hmm. interesting because it's like he 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 doesn't buy, it feels like he doesn't even buy into his own philosophy, right? Because he, he keeps saying how everybody thinks that they understand nature, they understand it, and telling them why they're wrong and what what's going to happen. And then ultimately he... In, in like you, as you said, in his arrogance, thinks that he understands this creature and knows what's happening in this situation, and mathematically or however he justifies it to himself, has figured it out and thinks that he can handle it. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a character standpoint, I think he's somebody that uh, that that seems to always start with the conclusion and then work backwards, right? If if chaos theory is his central idea and philosophy and approach to the world. No matter what happens, it, it proves that chaos theory is right. So yeah. I, I think that this was another thing where, I mean, he, he started with the conclusion, which was that he knew what to do and then worked backwards from there. But I think it also, yeah, I think that you're really right about, I mean, there's, from a character standpoint, it's completely consistent from a philosophical standpoint of who he claims to be. Um, yeah, there's a there's a disconnect there. I I have to I have to give a little bit of credit to him though, because um, I do think that there's a bit of bravery required for him to to do this action. Um, I think his arrogance is what gets him in trouble because he doesn't fully understand the situation and he assumes that he does. But I do think to, in order to even do what he does, you have to have a certain sense of bravery. And um, he does talk about loving children and, and how he has three of his own. And I think in this moment, he is trying to step up for these kids who are in danger. Um, so and he does say, get the kids. You know what I mean? When he when he when he tries to run off with the with the flare. So I got to give him a little bit of credit. You know, I, I think right. he is he is being pretty brave. I still yeah, I still like the moment. I still think it's cool that he, he does it um, because ultimately that's that's the right thing to do and, and he chooses to do it um which uh, so. we talked about on our book episodes uh grant and and malcolm do almost none of this in the book version of this they just yeah. kind of sit there while the other while the other car gets attacked um yeah. so i really like this change logically i want to see if we can f- if we can sort this out together so the way the way that the park is set up the t-rex paddock is where the t-rex comes through right and on the other side of the fence is like a wall almost, right? It's like, or not really a wall, but like a, a similar thing on the other side. And so the T-Rex breaks through, rips down the, the, that portion of fencing and steps right over it. And then as the scene progresses, the, the T-Rex flips over the Jeep or the Ford Explorer, whatever it is, flips it over, wrecks it, and then is pushing it, I assume back the way that it came, right? Where the T-Rex came through the fencing. But now it's like a 20-foot, 30-foot, 50-foot drop, <laughs> yeah. something like that. So, I mean, I suspend my disbelief for the film and for the sake <laughs> of the story. Uh, and I think it adds a lot of tension. But I just want to know, like, what, what was going on there? Did they just they say, like, nobody will notice? I don't know. I, I think just visually I interpret it as uh, on one side there's a fence. On the other side there's a, uh, there's a drop-off. So I, I always interpret it as it, it, was, uh, it came through the fence and then pushed the the uh the explorer off the other side of the road 
Okay, right. but there was dangling uh, fence lines that they they held on to. So yeah, those were those were pretty long cables, though, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, reach it's, across the supposedly road. there's like what fifty <laughs> miles of of uh, electrical fencing around the whole island. That's true. Yeah. Well, that could be the answer to the question. Yeah, I doubt he could hold onto that cable with his bare hands with a child on his back um, later <laughs> on when when that car's coming down. But um, Ooh, I, have uh, a, uh, I, have a, I have a factoid for you here. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'd love to hear book, it. Uh, Let's hear it. The book Rise of the Superman, which is all about the science of human potential, mm-hmm. uh, there was a story about a, uh, a skydiver, in fact, a base jumper that was jumping into the Cave of Swallows, which is that really photogenic pit cave where people uh, are jumping off the edge of it and, and then down this pit cave, uh, had a parachute failure, managed to grab onto a, uh, a safety, uh, like a, one of the ropes um, coming down the side, one of the ascent ropes, as he is, you know, as he's going down. Uh, wow. So... Supposedly, I mean, he shouldn't have even been able to see the rope, much less grab onto it. I mean, he shredded his entire arm doing it, too. Sure. I mean, he was in some really rough shape. But, uh, you know, when when you've got enough adrenaline in your system, uh, you yeah. can do some pretty – some stuff that might surprise yourself, right? That's a great point. Yeah, as much as I want to, as much as I want to pick things apart, yeah, sometimes superhuman feats are possible in those kind of situations. Especially and, the Spielberg uh, movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and if anyone would know, it's Taylor. So we'll we'll take your word for it there. <laughs> so uh, the next scene is Nedry and he crashing and ultimately running into the Dilophosaurus. Mm-hmm. Uh, this scene, this is another very iconic scene. I think because of the practical effects of the moment and and the way that the Dilophosaur uh, moves around and and chases Nedry and is like playing with him at first. And then Luke, you mentioned in another episode, he's so like. He's so dismissive, and and then like I can't remember the word that you used, but it was it was a great <laughs> word for the moment. I'm sure uh, it was. I can't remember it either. <laughs> he was just very. He was he was kind of like he's, he's kind of making fun know. of it a little bit, and he's being arrogant, and he's like throwing the stick and telling him to go fetch, and he's a stupid animal. And yeah. then it and then it spits on him. He gets his comeuppance, and when he gets back in the car, I feel like I still check my car every once in a while for Dilophosaur <laughs> sitting in the passenger seat before it spits me spits into my eyes. <laughs> So far, so good. Uh, and then ultimately, Nedry loses the Barbasol can, which that that prop is is incredibly well crafted. Yeah, there um there's a moment I just because we are giving we've been heaping praise on the sound design of this movie. Um, I have to I have to like, once again nitpick a little bit because this is the millionth time I've seen the movie. Um, when he first is getting out of his car to go down the waterfall, I think I know where this is going. He slips, and when he slips, they do the sound of like a—I don't know—it's like a slide rule or something. It goes, it's like, whoo, like I don't know. It's like it's a comedy sound, right? Right. That you'd get in the old days when when when, com- when comedians would slip on a banana peel. It's that right. sound, and you they do funny? it here. And I don't like like it. Just it, I don't like that choice to me because it, it 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 does something weird to the scene in my opinion, that that I don't like. Caitlin picked it up as well. She was like, that, no way that just happened. And I was like, I was in denial. I was like, no. I was like, negative. That's not true. Did you rewind it and listen? I didn't rewind it because I don't <laughs> want to know if it's true or not. It's true. I'm telling you. I mean, I, it, look, I don't know. I was like, I think it's the sound of his of his jacket slipping on the waterfall or something like that. But if you say it's there, it's there, man. I, I don't know. It, it, both of you guys saying it can't be a coincidence. It sounds like there's a slide whistle <laughs> banana peel moment. Yeah. Which is a kind of a, I don't know. Kind of cheesy. It was also, I feel like it's like a 90s thing too. Like you saw that in a lot of 90s movies. 
like those kind of little sound effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if every if any character had a, a comedy sound effect associated with his death coming, it, it would be Nedry. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. I guess that's true. I, but I, I don't know. It's like I think part of it that bothers me is also because he is obese, and I feel like this movie makes a lot of points about pointing that, like pointing that out, and and us we're supposed to think it's funny, and then a fat man falling getting that sound effect. I don't know. I know he's a reprehensible character, but like I said, it just it just didn't quite sit with me, you know, as being something that I, that I would want in the movie. Yeah, I see that. So the next thing is Ellie shows up with Muldoon and they they're searching around. They see one of the cars is missing. One of the cars is in perfect condition. Very interesting and iconic moment. Mm-hmm. Uh and then they stumble around, they find pieces of Gennaro <laughs> and then they find Malcolm. And they, they're talking about, like, can we move him? And Malcolm sits up and he's like, yes, please try, basically. They get him in. They get him into the Jeep. Another extremely iconic moment is the, again, the vibrating water in the, the footprint of the, of the wrecks from before. The moment where, he, where Malcolm's just like, we have to get out of here. We have to get out of here. They jump in the car and the wrecks bust through as they, just as they start driving away. And in a, a moment for me, anytime I feel like somebody needs to go faster, I love the iconic line where Malcolm is like, must go faster. <laughs> <laughs> when the T-Rex is like right behind, right behind him, it's just gold, man. Mm-hmm. I love that line. And uh, seeing the Rex in the side view, I, it's just like, it's great filmmaking. It's, it's taking something that you see in your daily life and putting a T-Rex in it. Yeah, they did such a good job making the uh, T-Rex feel like it had weight to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Every footstep, the sound design, the camera shaking just completely sells it. It's crashing through down trees, which are splintering all over the place. They're just using all of these small, practical um, uh, aspects to filmmaking to really sell this, uh, to, to sell the CG part of it. I thought that that was so well done. Oh, that reminds me of something I heard on that behind the scenes uh documentary thing the sound of the rex's footsteps were recordings of redwoods being felled and hitting the ground so every time it took a step is the sound of a tree like a giant tree hitting the ground crashing to the ground and so it gave it this really like thunderous footstep Uh, i just think that's so cool that they can pull a sound like that and convince us it's a footstep so uh there's also the scene here where the tree the i'm sorry the explorer has, has stuck up in the tree and and tim is sitting in there yeah my my first thought is first off um i think it's a great detail that tim has thrown up and his main concern is he doesn't want anyone to know um again that i think it's just a brilliant child moment and and i love grant assuring him that he won't tell anyone when he figures out that that's the problem um that's great and then my other thought is this scene is strikes me as just really oddly like contrived the way that the tree, the car falls down the tree over top them. There's also a moment where it seems very clear that they could just go around the tree and none of this would be a problem. I don't know. It reminds me of the Indiana Jones scene, another Spielberg film, where he could have gone under the rolling boulder instead of running down the hallway, right? right. Like he had a moment where he could have made a choice to, to escape the danger and instead he chooses to, to make it worse. Well, he, would been, he would have been sealed in, though, not to take us on a tangent, right? True. Well, I guess because, yeah, what ends up happening right down the road. That's true. That is true. And not to mention, like, nobody's there to see Indiana Jones jump underneath a boulder. They want to <laughs> see him true. run down the hallway. <laughs> they want to see him run from a boulder. They want to see Grant climb down a tree from a car. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. 
Yeah, the part that struck me about this was, uh, you know, uh, I think that any good horror movie involves kind of like this the, the descent of, of, of humanity, right? Where all of the the higher-minded stuff gets kind of slowly stripped out and you become more and more a basic version of what a human is, you know, down to the survival instincts, action, reaction, things like that. So along those lines, uh, I think that this is a transition point where we start realizing that, you know, Grant and the kids in particular have to almost start acting like primates in order to survive. Uh, their their go-to survival tactic is to literally just climb a tree. Right after they're out of the uh, out of any immediate danger, um, and uh, I, I also really struck me how well Spielberg captured uh, shock in children too. Uh, mm-hmm. It gets a little bit more cartoony as as time as the movie progresses, but in that moment, I mean, they're just completely traumatized. And I think that uh, despite it still being kind of a family friendly movie, he does capture that in their performance so when they climb this tree and they're and they're sitting up there and kind of just trying to this is their safe space where they're probably going to fall asleep um i just wanted to mention that this is an expert moment for spielberg because you need this moment right you need the moment the come down after this after this large scale attack that they've experienced and the moment and and he uses it as a character moment to to build the relationship between the kids and grant and he uses it to give a reprieve for the audience for the coming events and this this is i feel like this is something that a lot of movies today don't necessarily get right because you do i feel like this moment this moment of reprieve this moment of like all that they have where they look out and they see all the all the brontosaurus or uh, Brachiosaurus, whatever the whatever these specific ones are, uh, <laughs> they have this moment, and and Grant, this is Grant able to enjoy the park again because yeah. uh, we don't get a lot of that from Grant's perspective. It's a lot of running and and hiding and and not seeing dinosaurs. But then they get to interact, and he gets to feed one. I just think it's a great moment. I have to make a kind of deep cut reference here that uh, that scene gave me, and I don't even know if you're going to get this, James. I don't know how far you played in Dark Souls. Okay. Original? Did you play a lot of that? I I played more. I played all of Dark Souls two. I think I only played part of Dark Souls one. So okay. go for it. Are you we'll familiar see. with Dark Souls, Taylor? I'm Video familiar game? with it. I've never actually played it though. Okay, so this won't be for you two. This will be for our listeners. <laughs> if anybody's <laughs> played it, uh, there's a character called Frampt that shows up in Dark Souls one towards the end of the game, and he's a giant like neck that's coming out of this hole and he has this like weird fit head and mouth and you feed him stuff and you're basically just interacting with this like brachiosaur like head and I, as soon as i thought of framped in this scene i just couldn't like i couldn't shake it that's what this <laughs> this, this this brachiosaur reminded me of so <laughs> nice yeah that's hilarious oh um i don't so around this same time there's uh ellie sitting down with hammond and he's eaten his mm-hmm. ice cream which is a great m- detail from the book um, and he tells his story about the fleas, right? And which is, I think, a great character moment. And um, I just wanted to call out a line that I that has to this day bothered me. Um, as much as that's a great scene, um, Ellie says, "I was overwhelmed by the power of this place, but I didn't have enough respect for it, and it's out now." And I just, I something about that turn of of speaking about the power of this place as a metaphor to the power of this place as like the literal voltage. Um, I don't know. It's just always it, it doesn't 
doesn't jive with me. So I just wanted to see, like, maybe I'm alone, you know, on this podcast. So I wanted to see what your what your two takes on that line is. Yeah, I didn't catch it at all. I, th- I think that I just kind of, uh, in my mind, papered over it with thinking that she was saying that, like, the T-Rex is out. Right. That's what uh, I thought. You know, like, uh, oh, interesting. So you took it to be that that it the the power is like out on the loose, right? When she yeah. says that, yeah, the oh. power has been has been released, basically. See, I thought mm-hmm. she was saying the power of the park is out, like it's gone. You know what I mean? Like the power's out. Interesting. I wonder what the intention was there then, because I can kind of see it both ways. I don't know. People can write in if they if they what their takes are, because I'm really interested. Like maybe I'm the only one who thought of it that way, but I always assumed that's what she meant. I never, th- I never took it that way. I always thought that she meant like the power of th- what they've been trying to control is out, not necessarily the, the actual power. Uh, just wanted to shout out Attenborough again in the scene. Um, there's a reason why he was picked to play Hammond, and I think this scene is it. Like it's, it's the full, it's the full circle moment. He's realizing his failures. He's realizing what he wanted to do, where he went wrong. But then ultimately, he's like, next time it'll be better, and it's yeah. like. So it's like he's seeing his failures and not accepting them. So it's his moment to be like, basically, uh, in the book, it's leading us to him not having not learned anything and ultimately dying. But in this yeah. situation, it's a little different. I think he learned something in this movie. So I, I don't know if that's the same. What was your take on that, Taylor? Yeah, I had a slightly different interpretation of that. Um, I've always found that people in, in, in extremely stressful survival situations have a real inability to to concentrate, well, to, to, to grasp the big picture. It, it struck me as him not actually understanding what had happened or how out of control it actually is. He clearly hasn't accepted the fact that his grandchildren are in, are in such immediate peril. Uh, what he sees is, is, you know, because he's in such trauma at that point that the ice cream is melting and that's something that he can focus on and do something about because he's so rattled by the experience um, and, and can't really just can't even accept what his own eyes are, are, are seeing or what people around him are telling him. Yeah. It's like a denial. It's, it's a denial moment in my interpretation. Yeah, and I like that. Um, and I think you can have that at the same time that the juxtaposition of him eating ice cream while we know Grant and the kids are fighting for their lives is still is still powerful in that way too, right? Oh, like it's it's it's, a, it's it's a scene that works on so many levels. It's It's really interesting and... And um, I just also like that that Ellie shames him a little bit um, and he, you know, for, for talking about the next time. And but yet there's a there's something in his eyes. And that's why I wanted to, to mention it, because I think the acting it's it's all acting. Right. There's something in his eyes that tells me that he hasn't given up on this park and that even w- even though all this is going down, that he still believes in it and he still believes in his dream. Right. Like he hasn't lost it. Yeah, I, I got that sense too. I always got the sense from this that there was going to be like kind of a, a phase two before it even opened. Uh, as we go through the park, we can see that none of the dinosaurs will actually come out to be seen. We can see that the, the velociraptors are totally out of control. Uh, Mike, maybe this is more of a fan theory than an, an interpretation, but I always thought that um, they were going to do another generation of dinosaurs, maybe try to go for something a little bit more docile. Uh, at least among the carnivores, before it actually opened, because you know, no, you can't have a uh, a park charging the kind of rates that they're talking about charging going through, and all you see is maybe some leaves rustling. You can't even <laughs> see the T Rex. So, but again, that might be more of a fan theory. 
I like it though. <laughs> it seems yeah. like it'd be a smart decision. Well, in the book, they talk about tampering. Like Wu wanted to to make them more docile. So that's it's. So there's something yeah, there. There's something there. Um, sure. So I just came to a thing in my notes that I haven't mentioned yet, and I just want to say it before I get past it. And it's it's funny because this is something that I feel like I wouldn't have noticed before we started doing this podcast, um, because I, I pay attention a lot more to differences that are on screen through the medium than what you can do in a book, right? And lighting is something that I think Spielberg is incredible at. And I wanted to point out that there are a lot of scenes in this in this movie where characters have beams of light either like behind them. It's even like when I think when the life finds a way speech, Malcolm is sitting with like a projector behind him that yeah. is like shining all around him mm-hmm. and just how there's multiple times in the, in the, this happens a lot with the flashlights they carry where the one will be on like a table and it'll be like uh, Arnold is like leaning over a computer and he's being illumined. He's like being like backlit from this flashlight. There's just a lot of really interesting lighting choices uh, with beams of light in this movie that that's that stood out to me in viewing it. Maybe you can uh, tell me a little bit about that, James. <laughs> I think it has something to do with it feeling uh, unnatural, like it's unnatural lighting to make you feel like something's different than normal, right? So it's like the idea of like if you put the if you put the camera on an angle and it's like a Dutch angle, it's when it, when the viewer sees that they're they're they interpret it as something is amiss, something is awry, something not normal is going to happen. So I think a lot of the lighting had something to do with that. Not to mention it looks really cool when you have like somebody backlit for a scene like Malcolm's speech or something like that. Um, or to, to give a certain amount of like intensity to how scary it is when all the lights are out and there's dinosaurs out there and there's a, like the only source of light they have is from directly behind Arnold's. Yeah, it's a, you know, just to chime in here a little bit, it's uh I mean, Spielberg is a, is a director who paints with light, right? It's, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, the light shows you who you're supposed to focus on. If a character is going into a particularly compelling monologue about something, there's probably some kind of lighting element which is highlighting them. It's not just the way that they're framed, it's, it's the way that they're led to. It's, it's, uh, I mean, he's, he's a master at that. Yeah, he's definitely got an eye for it. So the kids and Grant start going on their journey again, and they run into a stampede, and they have to yeah. avoid it. And this this is another like situation where you can really see um, what they're able to do, which was not able to be done before, which is have a stampede of of dinosaurs. You can see their feet all the way across, um, and it's just it's great to see to see them running away from it and and hiding, and. This leads them to the fence, which is not electrified right now because all the power is out because of Nedry, and they have to climb it. Yeah, and this scene happens at the same time that we see Ellie going to the shed to try and, and, and reactivate the power, and the way it cuts in between the two, right, where she's going down one at a time, turning on the fence, and we see the, the, the sirens come on, and we see her making progress, and man, that's just something you can only do in film, right? Like It's so hard to do something like that in a book. At least in the same way. I also just wanted to, to to note that when Grant first goes up to the uh, to the fence, I saw this. I saw this on the internet. I can't take full credit for it, um, but someone said that uh, it's the greatest dad joke ever told, and it's him pretending like he's getting shocked by the by the fence and then turning around and making the face at the kids. Uh, I, I just like the idea of that being a dad joke. <laughs> yeah, he seems to be the only one that finds that funny, <laughs> which I think is essential for dad jokes, right? <laughs> oh yeah. 
Well, I mean, especially uh, considering what happens here in a second. They, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they climb the fence, and as they get up there, uh, as you said, Ellie's flicking all the breakers. Everybody else is off, and, and Tim's having some trouble getting down. And they're telling him to jump, and I thought this was funny because they were telling him to jump, and they were like 50 feet, 50 feet away from the fence. And they were like, just jump, and, he, and Grant had his arms out like he would catch him. But then as, then as time goes on, he gets closer to the fence. And Ellie gets the power back on, and Tim goes flying through the air. But it's weird because when he catches him, he's he's far away from the fence again. It's another, like, um, I don't know if it's an editing thing or what, but it felt to me like he was directly beneath him. And then mm-hmm. he goes shooting off and somehow he catches him like 15 feet away from the fence. I don't know. I'm nitpicking again. <laughs> right. It's just one of those things where it's like in this, unless you've seen it a hundred times, you might not even notice it. Probably don't know? even notice. Yeah. That's the point. I think, I mean, I think it was Scorsese that said, I think it was Scorsese. Hopefully I'm not misquoting, but he said like, if there's an error like that, that you notice in the this, this scene, then the scene isn't working. Right. So it's like those little those little things that that turn up, like if those are the things that you're noticing in the scene, then they're not doing their job correctly. Right. Because you're not you're not swept up in it enough. Right. So you're noticing stuff like that or you've seen it a thousand times. I'm a a little surprised (laughs) that this made it into the final cut for a couple of reasons. Uh, On one hand, I think it's fantastic storytelling to have two characters that you're both rooting for with uh with objectives that are essentially in competition. Right. Ellie wants to turn the fence back on. Of course she does. But she has no idea how this is going to affect Grant and, and those two kids. You know, I'm also I'm also generally speaking a fan of outlining the worst case scenario and then actually making that happen in the story rather than just constantly have threats that don't pay off. But on the flip side, they put ten thousand volts through a kid. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he should was, be dead. <laughs> I was a, I was a little surprised it made it in. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like it just takes like one expert to kind of go, "Hey, uh, he'd totally be dead by <laughs> right." Like he wouldn't be fine, you know, in the next scene. <laughs> oh, but, it, but his hair is his hair is kind of sticking up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he would be he would be a he would be a uh, you know a bug that flew into a bug zapper. Yeah, you know, yep. it's it's pretty common when um, you know like the resurrection of the hero, right? The hero gets gets you know killed or, or something like that, and they do CPR or something happens, and they rise again. And I mean, it's it's it, it's pretty classic storytelling. But again, it's a little surprising to see it happen to a kid where they actually have to do CPR on him to get him breathing again. Yeah, I mean, I I think, I, I, but I like that though. I, I don't know, like it's just, it's surprising, I guess, also to see it happen to a kid. Um, I agree that it, yeah, it's it's it stretches credibility a little bit, but. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting too. So I, I guess I'm okay with it being in there. This is the raptor, the raptor showdown with Ellie. The reveal is so good. Yeah. Uh, where where she she um she's on the radio and she's saying like powers back on or whatever, and the raptor just bursts through that that piping or whatever over her shoulder, and it's like a here's Johnny moment from The Shining a, or something. It's the it's the biggest jump for sure. It's it it's is a, oh, it's startling, right? Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Uh, and then her her battle with the yeah her battle with the raptor as she she tries to escape, um, and then and then she eventually reaches Grant and and he's like talking to her about the raptors or whatever and he, she's like well uh, there's only two left because unless they learn how to open doors, yeah yeah so of course it's gonna open the door immediately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we do also, um, I want to mention the Muldoon stuff cause that all happens at this time too. Um, I, this is the first time where I noticed that it's, it's, um, chronology is a little weird for me because he tells Ellie 
run because you won't like you're you won't make no he says we won't make it because we're being hunted right and he tells her to run all of and then she goes in there her turning on the power and everything that happens with grant all of that goes down before she leaves and and it's not until she leaves the shed that we actually see what happened with muldoon when he was like pursuing that raptor so it almost feels like it was supposed to like it like it's like going back in time to show us what happened but um, the movie never does that anywhere else, so it also, it just felt like something weird with the editing to me. Does that make sense? Like it's, it felt the scene felt out of place, like it it should have happened earlier. Yeah, it was it was definitely maybe meant to be intercut or or something like that, and because the the chronology is is slightly off. But at, the, um, at that point, you know, part of the reason I I can forgive that is that everybody's having a pretty individual experience at that time. They're as split up as they'll ever be. Yeah, uh, and then when you have that many characters in that many different situations of peril, uh, I'm okay with people kind of experiencing time in slightly different ways. You yeah, know what yeah, I, mean? it's, I agree. It's still, it still all holds together pretty well. It, yeah, it's, yeah not, it's, it, it's it's off, but it's not distracting, at least to me. Yeah, and to James's point, it's one of those things that I'm probably only only noticing because, <laughs> like I said millionth time seeing it <laughs> um i do but the other bonus is you get to pick up little symbols and things that you don't think about and i want to also shout out something that i so when i referenced that gate thing earlier right uh, for the raptors um it's to reference this thing that i picked up on this movie and that's that um i believe there's very strong symbols and motifs and allusions to hell and to demons and to satan surrounding these raptors um and the first i think Jumpstart to that is when we see the mother raptor looking over the branch and the snake crawls into frame. And when I think of the snake, I think of the Garden of Eden and I think of, um, you know, the, you know, story of the Bible where uh, Satan uh, tempts humanity, right, with the, with, the, with the forbidden fruit, which you can then extrapolate out to the forbidden fruit of science and for, you know, playing God and all that stuff too, right? I immediately thought of the uh, the raptors as these demonic figures. The gate opening reminds me of, like the gates of hell, um, letting loose the demons. Um, and then later on in the scene we're about to get, when the two raptors first come into the kitchen together, there's a scene where they're standing side by side and the two heads kind of nip at each other. And I immediately thought of Cerberus. Um, and yeah, so anyway, I made this big, strong, like big multi-part symbol thing that that i have never noticed before but i came up with watching this time what do you think <laughs> maybe i'm full of shit but i it was something i i thought i thought i was picking up on it's pretty interesting i yeah i never thought of anything like that i'm trying to think if there's many other um uh, spielberg movies that lean heavily on religious allegory in a, in a visual sense some um, it's it's not one of it's not one of his most common tricks at, at any sure. rate well, yeah, uh, I mean, you could look at Indiana Jones as more on the nose with all the all the religion, um, so he's not shy about using it. But yeah, I think it's more because it's very subtle. Uh, I think it's it's yeah, I mean, it's if it's there if it's there at all, like an allegorical sense, right? Because yeah, because like right. you said, Indiana Jones that is the story. Um, but I don't know. I just like the idea of these raptors as being almost a demonic force, but not really, not like li- literally, but like in just a kind of a symbolic way. Um, and I don't know, like, I think that snake is a very interesting, deliberate choice, right? And and why else is it there, if not to evoke, I don't know, the most famous snake of all time, right? I like I like the read. I think it's interesting. Um, but what I get from the snake is um, 
a reptile or something that could potentially have lived in the same era, kind of like the the two species meeting and like the idea that like they're in the same time frame uh, now in our in our time. Uh, that's what I got from this from the snake thing. But I do like the idea. I like the whole thing that you extrapolated out, like the Cerberus thing. I see that with the with the raptors and the forbidden fruit of no, uh, forbidden fruit is knowledge, right? Yeah, and and th- and therefore science. Um, so I think a, a Garden of Eden allegory. I don't know. I like. I, I mean, it's a valid point. I definitely think yeah. it's. I, I stand by it. There. Whether or not it's there, I don't know. But I just it, it makes me happy. I, I like to pretend it is there at least. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, then we get the kitchen scene, which you were just alluding to, which is yeah. probably, in my opinion, the second best scene in, in the whole movie, and that's yeah. saying something because the first best scene is amazing. Uh, yeah. This scene is incredible. And the puppetry in here mixed with the CG, again, is, is amazing. And I, I would argue, although the T-Rex attack is scary, the, the idea of these smaller, more intelligent creatures after you is even scarier. What do you guys think of the scene? Yeah, the, the T-Rex scene, it's, I mean, that, that really evokes such a sense of awe. This, it's just, it's just threat, right? Uh, when, uh, right going back to the, to, to the beginning uh, the first scene with Grant, uh, he doesn't talk about the T-Rex. He talks about how the Velociraptor will chase you down and split you open. So, um, yeah, I think that this, this by far for me at least was the tensest scene in the entire movie. Plus, it's 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 really the kids that are uh, in the most amount of danger. Um, and at this point too, it's it's we get to see how far these kids have come too, where they they are. They're working together. Um, it's they know that they can't outrun these animals at all. So what they have to do is they have to be more clever, more clever than the smartest dinosaur in the entire park. So that uh, that was really fun to see. Where they just didn't have much hesitation. They weren't cowering in fear. They were just you know it was just one half step ahead of the raptors just for the entire time. Really, I mean, he kept me on the edge of my seat, even even watching it for probably the tenth time. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Um, I also just want to shout out. I think um, something I noticed that Spielberg was doing, I think, to sell these effects. Um, there's multiple times where we see a raptor come up to glass and then exhale, and the way its exhale uh, fogs up the the glass, right? Um, it's that little detail. Same thing with like um, the pupil shrinking in the Rex when the when the flashlight gets pointed into it. Um, all these little things sell us that it's real, right? Um, and I thought of another little moment when that when um, Tim looks over and he sees the the raptor's big claw tapping on the ground as it's walking, and just like those little details sell it in such a way that um, I think so many other like directors miss these little things that you can do to just really sell stuff. Yeah, because those aren't the kind of things that you can just kind of insert in post, right? You have to right. walk into it knowing exactly what you're going to film, what you want to get out of out of it, and then uh, carry it all the way through into post-production. Yeah, and to reference uh, another project that we've covered, Luke, Peter Jackson, famously for his Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, he had storyboarded everything and he had taken little lipstick cams and, and done all of his shots he wanted with miniature. He had everything planned out going into the production 
didn't know this until this viewing of the special features. I think that he got it from Spielberg because Spielberg did all of that, completely storyboarded, knew all the shots he wanted, did everything with miniatures and a lipstick cam, got all the shots he wanted, basically shot the movie just, I mean, Peter Jackson did the same thing, basically shot the movie before going on set and shooting the movie. And I yeah, thought that was, wild. I mean, that amount of, of planning leads to, uh, like you guys were saying, these things that you have to, you can't just like, that's not something you wing or something you improvise. That's planned, that's built in. Um, and it adds a lot. Yeah, another movie created like that, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. <laughs> Great uh, film. Know, another really good example of, of uh, all the planning that you put into the front end, you're going to get right back out at the back end. Agreed. Yeah. So uh, I, during this kitchen scene, the kids outsmart uh, the Raptors and they're able to get away and meet up with with Grant and Ellie and they're all kind of in the in the air ducts and everything and actually they get into before they go into the air ducts they get into the control room and get all the power back on and everything back on mm-hmm. in a good moment for for Lex I like that that her character was able to do that which is different than anything she gets to do in the book yeah so they they escape that room and they're they're having to crawl up into the scaffolding because the raptors have gotten in and uh they end up in like the main atrium area with the fossils as they're getting down they're climbing onto the to the fossils the bones and the raptors attack and they like jump onto the bones as well and they're all swinging around and flying and stuff and they they come down to the ground they're being surrounded by raptors then we get the t-rex machina (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where uh, <laughs> where the uh, the T-Rex jumps in at the last second and, and snags the raptor that's jumping that's jumping to to get all of them and uh, in what is a very exciting scene uh, grant yeah. like granted it's kind of ex you know Deus Ex Machina ish but um, the the Rex grabs the raptor thrashes them about and saves them effectively and then kills the other raptor and does the famous the famous dino roar the famous t-rex roar and the banner falls and that moment gets me every time that shot the the i know that spielberg probably was just like i have to make this the most iconic that i possibly can but it's it's so iconic the the banner falling that leads us up basically to the to the end of the film uh they they're able to escape effectively after that they get onto the to the helicopters and as they leave they see the birds flying and grant kind of uh, holding the kids, comforting them, and, and Ellie sees that, and you can see their relationship. And uh, I, we didn't talk a lot about what Malcolm did, but Malcolm also made it off this time instead of dying as he did in the book. Right. Well, maybe did in the book. Potentially. <laughs> it's, told, it's said to, to do. Uh, yeah, I'd, just, uh, ra- uh, I'd love to hear your take on, on these last few scenes here, Taylor. You know, one of the things that struck me is it, it uh, how abruptly it ended. Right. I mean, we have that final kind of incredible, iconic moment. Uh, T. Rex in the middle of the, uh, you know, standing on top of the bones of its of its ancestors as the as the banner flutters down. They hop in the jeep. They're at the helicopter. There's there's a guy uh, driving them out there, and which made me kind of wonder. It's like, where where was this guy the whole time? Did he just did he just sleep? <laughs> Did he sleep through the fall of dress? He's always in the Jeep. He's always yeah. hanging out in the Jeep. <laughs> yeah. That was the vet, right? Is that I think that's who it was. Oh, was, was it? it? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I didn't just who he was a little bit more of a character in the book. He seemed to have missed most of the action, though. That that's what struck me. Uh, at any rate, um, and then they're just kind of they're a little bit reflective as they, mm-hmm. you know, fly away from the island, but that's that's really it. I mean, on, on one hand it's it's been such journey and, and 
Spielberg built it up so much that the fact that it's abrupt doesn't take away from how satisfying it is. Um, yeah. And maybe we don't have to have a, well, what did we learn conversation because everybody kind of knows. We've, we've been having that conversation throughout the whole movie. For, for a movie that borrows as much as it does from horror, it struck me as having a very, very conventional uh, adventure, like family adventure movie ending. Yeah, I can see that. I, I mean, I do think it's nice that they get that moment of reflection of uh, peace and of kind of like decompression after the craziness that's been happening. And, and the movie almost ends on the score as we watch these birds flying, right? So it is. it, it creates a really interesting dynamic to like what we just saw, of like the insanity that was going down. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is... It is fairly conventional in, in that sense, and, and I think that maybe can be okay for this film because I think it's fitting for the kind of movie it is. I guess. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely fitting, but with the exception of 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 Grant maybe moving into this archetypal father role and Hammond being thoroughly humbled by the experience, how much has has everybody kind of changed his characters? That's yeah. that was something that you know that's something that stuck with me. Yeah, I think the kids grew, and I think Grant grew. Um, but I agree. I don't know. I Hammond, I'm sure, has some lessons that he's learned. I don't know that he's fully learned his lesson. But but how much how much did the uh, how much even did the kids grow? Right, because we see them in in that exact same pose of falling asleep on on Grant as we did in the tree. Well, I mean, I think that, like, they had their moments, though, too, right? Like, honestly, Lex had more moments than Tim, but Lex had the moment uh, where she kind of outsmarted the Raptors and then also um, worked on the the software on the computer. Lex overcame her fear, I think, would be one thing for her because she initially is just terrified out of her mind, and she she was able to find bravery. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think their arcs are all kind of minor and kind of beside the point. I think the major arc is is Grant and his relationship to children um, and then Hammond, I think, and him being humbled by what happens. But I do want to touch on a couple things in those previous scenes real quick. Um, I, I, in the, in the post, in the, um, behind the scenes footage, um, they talked about how this scene was very different in the original script. Um, The Raptors were going to get impaled by falling bones, and that was going to be how they were going to be killed. So different kind of deus ex machina. Um, and then Spielberg decided that he loved the early footage they were getting too much of whenever the Rex was on screen, and he said, we got to bring him back. He's the main character of this movie. He's got to come back. Or she, sorry, God damn it, <laughs> did it again. <laughs> um, she's got to come back. What's funny, there's this, there's a little uh, little a little thing in there that I thought was funny where uh, this guy who who says, okay, that's great, but but how do they get there? Like, how does she get there? And Spielberg says, she comes in from over, like from this part of the frame or whatever. And the guy was laughing and saying, Spielberg was just answering how the Rex comes into frame into his movie. Whereas he meant, how does it get into this room? (laughs) Right. It's not very clear whether the T-Rex could have cleared the opening there. Yeah, I think it could. I could just barely, I could just barely see it. And, and right. part of it is, I think I can see it because I was watching it in Blu-ray, and I could see the door. Whereas I think originally it was very unclear, like how that Rex got into that room. Yeah. Again, I think it just basically comes back down to like, is it an effective moment in yeah. in cinema? You know what I mean? Is it? Is it? Does it work? And then if it does, then the audience will buy in. And it lay it lays the groundwork for a lot of these other movies because I think um, if you look at like Jurassic World is a clear example of of where the dinosaurs themselves are almost m- more integral characters than than just like creatures right like they're characters themselves 
And 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 that's so that's a motif I think that's been carried on to all these other movies. And it's funny to think about how it was a last second edition. I had no idea that it was a last second edition. I mean, it's just such an iconic moment. It's it never would have even occurred to me to wonder whether it could fit through the door or not. Right? <laughs> it's it's just my my suspension of disbelief at that point was so complete that mm-hmm. you know I was just on board for all the awesome stuff I was watching. So, did you guys have any other wrapping up thoughts? I've got. Just two real brief thoughts here. First, um, I mean, rewatching this, you can just see why big action-adventure films are divided into a before Jurassic Park and after Jurassic Park eras. I mean, it, it just it fundamentally shifted how movies like that were made. The other thing that I would say is, you know, I think that it would be, you know, worth revisiting um, as we go into more Jurassic World movies and more big-budget uh, high CG blockbusters just to see when they didn't have a whole lot to work with in terms of computing power, when they couldn't just throw CG horsepower at a visual effects problem. Um, that forced Spielberg to make this movie in a way that uh, was so uh, intentional, right? Down to the smallest details, the, like a fog on a window when the raptor breathes. Uh, just a little subtle camera shake when a footstep comes down. Uh, phenomenal sound design. Um, you know, a, a, a soundtrack that, that would just help us just, just elevate the audience in, into just believing that what we were seeing. Um, you know, it's, 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 I, I think that sometimes uh, movies will suffer from a, yeah, we'll fix this in post or we'll do this in post or, you know, the, the CG guys can just figure this all out. Um, and it ends up being a situation where we believe it less than we do uh, of this movie that was filmed 25 years ago. I did a little research into it. It's like, well, what computer uh, would my, my family have had during that time? It would have been one of the, <laughs> the old 486 computers, right? Because yeah. anybody that was buying a Pentium, I mean, that was it came out that year. The, the first Pentium computer came out the year that um, Jurassic Park came out. So... Uh, they couldn't throw a bunch of computer horsepower at this. They had to just throw uh, really effective filmmaking uh, technique at this uh, at this movie, and it, it paid off, and it continues to pay off. I completely agree with you that that Jurassic Park should be a, a great revisit for any filmmaker wondering how they should how they should handle their CG to practical. It's it, it's dependent on the characters, and I think that's definitely something that people should should take away from this film. I think this this is, I mean, I think to sum up what both of you are saying, this is a gold standard of blockbuster filmmaking and working with the technology you have and, 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 and making sure you sell everything you're putting on screen. So um, I think this is probably a great place to kind of wrap this up. Yeah. Any last thoughts, Taylor? Oh, just uh, going back to your ink to film uh, uh, theme here. I think that uh, any writer in the world would be uh, really, really lucky to have a, a, a book developed with this degree of, of care. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's just the dream. Yeah, that, that's it. That's the dream. That someone's going to care that much about your book, that they're going to put that much time and effort into it. So uh, we've been ending with a certain question. Um, basically, would you go to Jurassic Park? But I think knowing your record and knowing what you've done in your life, I assume that you would go. Is that is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I've, I've I've been you know three miles deep to the bottom of the ocean. I, I think Jurassic Park is. Uh, it's, I would definitely do it. The way I look at it is, uh, you don't have to outrun the dinosaurs. You just got to outrun the the slower tourists. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually going to have a slightly different question for you that I'm going to save for the end here. Um, but before we get to that, I want you to go ahead, if, if you're willing, to uh, to tell, let our listeners know where they can find you, uh, where they can find your book, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you'll put a link up in the show notes. Uh, best way to, to check me out is uh, my website, taylorzions.com. That's Z-A-J-O-N-C, believe it or not. Uh, you can find my my latest book, uh, The Maw, in you know basically online or any major uh, book real, uh, retailer. It's uh, if you're a fan of Crichton, I think you're going to really like this one. And I agree with that, uh, absolutely. It made me think of Crichton uh, just from reading that little bit that I you know just got the book. <laughs> um, but so that that comes around to my question. So my question is going to be a little different. It's going to be you are uh, contacted by uh, by a, by an organization that wants you to come to a newly discovered cave. And in this cave, they have found living dinosaurs. I know, unbelievable. But the whole point is they want to put together a trip to go down into this cave and investigate. Uh, would you do that? Oh, wow, that's a really good question. I have to say... Uh, and they are offering good money. I will say the pay is good. <laughs> my, my, whole, uh, my whole kind of metric on what I'll do and what I won't do has changed a lot since having a kid. I've got a two-year-old. Sure. He's, he's, he's just amazing. Uh, the ma is dedicated to him. Uh, sold the motorcycle, uh, a lot of changes <laughs> made, but I, I gotta say, it's it's hard to say no to an expedition. I think I'd do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm going anyway. <laughs> well, you gotta bring him with, right? So just a. Well, he's gotta be at least six. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on, Taylor. It's It's been awesome talking about this movie, movie with you. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, guys. This was a blast. So last week, we announced that our next project is going to be American Psycho, which I'm very excited for. Um, But I forgot to mention that we're actually going to be taking one week off. I'm going to the In Your Right Mind workshop or In Your Right Mind conference just outside of Pittsburgh in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. I'm going to be teaching a course there. I'm going to be on a couple of panels. So if anybody is in that area and wants to come see me, um, it's at Seton Hill University. Um, and it's uh, it's a several days long, and I'll be I'll be there for the whole event. Um, but because of that, we're going to take one week off. So the last week of June, there won't be an episode, and then we'll be back in the first week of July. So we recently started a Patreon, and we're basically just doing it to ensure that this show continues for the foreseeable future. We really enjoy bringing you this content, and we just wanted to try to find a way to interact more with our patrons. So if you could go ahead and check that out, it's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Yeah, we greatly appreciate it. Um, we wanted to go ahead and shout out one of our patrons, uh, Ben E. He's been he's been along with us from the beginning, like many of our patrons. Um, uh, he's been a supporter, and we really appreciate his support. Um once again, this is not like no pressure. You don't have to do this or anything. But um, if you if you're willing to check it out and you're and you're thinking that there's something you'd like to do to help us, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, the other thing you could do if you don't want to spend any money but you wanted to help the show is to leave a rating and a review on whatever podcast app you use to listen. Uh, iTunes is especially helpful. Um, so yeah, that just helps us get visibility and, and, and get more listeners. If you wanted to connect with us in any other way, we are on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's all at Ink to Film, and we're really active on there. Yeah, and we just wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. And we wanted to, ta- to thank Taylor Zients again for coming on. He's an amazing writer with uh, amazing world experience, and you should definitely check out his books. 
The Maw is the most recent one. Definitely check that out. And thank you to Taylor for coming on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Thank you so much, Taylor. Really appreciate it. And lastly, thank you all for listening. That's going to be it for Jurassic Park. It's been a it's been a really fun project and and exciting and, and it's funny because uh, it's another Spielberg project and I know we're going to return to him soon. So uh, he's becoming a staple of this thing uh, going forward. But it's been a lot of fun. He's a legend. So I'm glad that we get a chance to talk about his his material in addition to some of the people that he's adapted. And that's going to be it then. Uh, until next time, I'm Luke. And I'm James. See ya.